On the first Sunday of each month, ushers released us from our pews in a very orderly manner. We walked down the aisle of the sanctuary to the altar railing where we all kneeled in unison. The pastor then walked by each of us, placing a little wafer on our tongues, reciting the words, the body of Christ broken for you. And then a deacon followed with a golden plate of little shot glasses filled with wine, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. It was kind of cool when I was younger, when we were able to finally participate in communion, because it took two years of education in a confirmation class for us to be allowed to do so. And I tried to understand what the body and blood language was all about, but the truth is, I really only liked Communion Sundays because once we walked forward to receive the elements, we returned not to our pews, but out the side door to our car. Evidently, it was okay to leave early on Communion Sundays. Evidently, Communion Sunday was a day to remember the sacrifice of our Lord and beat the church crowd to Pappy's Country Buffet. <laughs> As a kid, there wasn't much that I understood about communion, except that I was to be very quiet and solemn, as if I were attending a funeral. It wasn't until I was in divinity school that I heard one of my friends refer to this meal as the Eucharist, or the joyful feast of the people of God, and I remember thinking, joyful? Really? How much wine do y'all get? <laughs> Theologians and church traditions have long debated this sacrament from one end of the altar cloth to the other. Consubstantiation or transubstantiation. Jesus' presence is in the community or in the bread and cup. It can be confusing even among those in the early church, there were multiple understandings and experiences of this meal. And arguably, the one we are most familiar with stems from the Apostle Paul and comes from his first letter to the Corinthians. You see, Paul was hearing news of pagan sacrifices and worshipers getting drunk and misbehaving. Word was that the rich were even excluding the poor from worship and the communion meal. And Paul just couldn't have that, so he writes a letter to the young church in Corinth reminding them of who they are, that through the Spirit they are the body of Christ. He writes, For I received from the Lord that which I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it apart and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Paul reminds us, Jesus took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sound familiar? 
You can imagine the impact that this letter had on the Corinth community. Reflecting on Jesus' sacrifice was just what they needed to sober up and think seriously about what it meant to be cross-carrying Christians. And then we have Luke's account of communion that comes from the book of Acts, and it's the earliest account we have. We are told after Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship. They shared all things in common with one another so that no one in their community ever went without. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the good will of all the people. Here we discover the Eucharist was an ordinary meal shared in community and characterized by a spirit of enthusiastic joy. Unlike the church in Corinth, this community needn't be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice because they were there. They witnessed every humiliating and demoralizing moment. What they needed reminded of was that Jesus was alive. So rather than focusing on the words of Jesus during the Passover meal, they focused on the resurrection appearances, which notably most often took place within the context of a meal. And then we have John's account. And his teaching on the sacrament is even slightly more different. For John, you see, it's all about the presence of Jesus in the community and in the bread and cup. Even here in this text, we notice this shift from we moved from flesh and blood language in the beginning to later on the Spirit being all that matters. But throughout the last couple of chapters, we discover John's use of language flesh and blood, body. It can, it can be read as cannibalistic. But there's at least one reason for that. You see, in the, when the fourth gospel was written, nearly a hundred years after Jesus, there was an emerging sect of the Christian church. The docetics believed and taught that Jesus wasn't really human. That Jesus really was only spirit. And this caused great concern for the evangelist John. After all, John's faith was deeply incarnational. If you remember, he begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The meal for John helps remind us all that in addition to Jesus being fully divine, he was also fully human, just like us. Now, it's a lot to hold in one ritual, all these meanings. And some would like to declare that one or the other is more important. I'm rather a all-of-the-above kind of gal myself. But you know... Throughout all three understandings, they do share a common thread. 
and that's that they are all equally offensive. Think for a moment. Ritualizing the remembrance of a capital murder? Living together in common and sharing all that you have, even with those that may not have worked as hard as you or earned it? Eat and drink on the flesh and blood of our Savior? From the outside looking in, it is confusing at best. But to tell you the truth, I've learned the hard way that outward appearances often do not tell the entirety of the story. Now, it would be challenging if you are caught up on our local news to miss the controversy swirling around the activities stemming from a small corner in West Asheville. And depending on who you ask, perspectives regarding the steady collective needle exchange, the anarchist bookstore firestorm, the Episcopalian Ministry of Kairos West, or Asheville Poverty Initiative's 12 Baskets Cafe, these perspectives span the spectrum. What is the glimpse of the kingdom of God for some is utterly offensive and frightening to others. At 12 Baskets, we believe what we do every day in providing a free meal really, truly is a lived-out experience of communion. It is sharing what we have so that no one goes without. It's breaking bread together so that we can relearn to see one another as neighbor. And for sure, what we do is fleshy and bloody on some days uncomfortably so. Yet each day without fail, Jesus shows up. In the abundance of the food being spread and in those whose pain is so great, they shed blood just to feel they are alive. And we can spend days talking about the dynamics of the violations these four organizations have been served, from the disappointment that the violations are steeped in discrimination, meaning we're not in violation because of what we do, but because of who we are assumed to primarily serve, to the miracle of relationships and collaboration that it has brought about with all of our neighbors after all, how else do you explain Jesus lovers and anarchists getting along? It's a complex and layered situation for sure. But what we cannot allow is sides to develop that dig their heels in around blame. Because blame simply acquiesces any responsibility that we all have for our neighbors among us. What is occurring in West Asheville simply is not new. Rather, these complaints that we are all experiencing that are driving the violations stem from a veil that is being lifted to see what has always been happening. It is only new to those of us who have had the privilege of pretending what we do not see does not exist. While it's uncomfortable, and yes, 
even offensive, to our avoid discomfort at all cost culture. What is before us is an opportunity to model the faith to which we claim. The faith that begins with the Word made flesh and ends in a bodily resurrection. The one that calls us to remove the plank from our own eye before judging others. The one that teaches when we all share what we have, there actually is enough for all of us. And the one that commands that we see Christ in the flesh of even the least in our midst. In a culture where fewer and fewer spaces exist where we can dismantle the myth of the other, 610 Haywood Road becomes even more vital. Christianity didn't begin with a doctrine, explains Reverend Dr. J. Johnson, but with radical table fellowship. The kind of table fellowship that disrupted cultural norms with an alternative social space. It began with flesh and blood brought together by spirit. Flesh and blood that sat around a table feasting together. Poor flesh, rich flesh, doubting flesh, and overly confident flesh. Flesh and blood that by all other accounts should not have been gathering, but in doing so, bared witness to a kingdom on its way. Bucking the labels, categories, and boxes of a culture that divide and diminish, gathering around a feast fit for all, retelling the story that binds us and picking up the cross of sacrificial, unconditional love, we break bread together because it opens our eyes to recognize the risen Christ in your flesh and blood and in mine. Is this offensive? Absolutely. Will some, maybe many, walk away when we live in to our faith? in the countercultural way that it is? You betcha. Because you see, what we do in communion is no less than a protest. It's an act of nonconformity. It cries out to a world operating in false binaries and superficial labels, the truth of abundance and the transformative power of table fellowship. Just like the early church before us, this meal we are about to share is rich and deep and always meets us where we are. And attempting to whittle it down to a one-dimensional soundbite is the equivalent of only driving by 610 Haywood Road and believing you know enough to offer an opinion. Now, I had no idea as a kid what it meant to receive the body and blood of Christ. And even today, how the Spirit speaks through it tends to shift and change. But throughout my life, this ritual, this table, these elements, our God has never failed to meet me in the place that I was, whether that was with abundant grace or the conviction that I needed. And perhaps that's why at 17, after taking my first sip or rather gulp of alcohol at a party, that I thought God was punishing me. Oh my God! 
I blurted out. God is making this drink taste like my church's communion wine. Who knew that Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill also had a secular purpose? <laughs> Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, Jesus teaches, and I in them. It's a divine mystery at best the ways Christ moves in and through this sacrament, but one thing is indeed certain. This ritual forms us again and again to be the people of God, to take what we've been given, give thanks to God for it, break it apart, pour it out, and share it. It teaches us how to live so that we can be God's manna for a starving world. It's a difficult teaching for sure and an even more difficult path on which we are called to walk. But as Simon Peter responds, but where else can we go? For it is here where we meet the Holy One of God. For it is here where we meet and feast on the words of eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen.